case is submitted. We'll hear argument next in number 901791, Connecticut National Bank versus Thomas M. Germain. Ms. Hall, you may proceed. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The issue presented on review in this case is the applicability of Section 1292B of Title 28 to an appeal to the Courts of Appeals from an order entered by the District Court. District Court's order is an interlocutory order, and it was entered while sitting in review of a bankruptcy court order entered in an adversary proceeding. The plain meaning of the words of Section 1292B apply in this instance. We have an order of the District Court in a civil action which has been certified. Therefore, there should be found under 1292B jurisdiction in the Court of Appeals to entertain the petition. In addition, Section 1292B had been applied to bankruptcy cases prior to 1978. It had been applied both subsection B since 1958 and prior to that, what is now subsection A concerning injunctive orders had been applied in the bankruptcy context previously. To reach the conclusion... How, which, how much weight do you think those pre-bankruptcy code enactment provision uh, cases have? I believe they're important, uh, Mr. Chief Justice, because they demonstrate that there was an existing scheme which recognized jurisdiction in the Courts of Appeals under Section 1292, as well as other sections which granted jurisdiction in bankruptcy cases. But the, the bankruptcy court was t tied much more closely to the district court before the enactment of the bankruptcy code, wasn't it? That is correct, although the bankruptcy court is still described in the 84 legislation as a unit of the district court, and because of Marathon, must rest on the Article Three power of the district court. Uh, although the system has changed, uh, it is not that great a difference in that the House's view of creating Article Three independent courts never prevailed in the Congress. These cases uh, pre-1978 teach us that there was recognized jurisdiction, an existing jurisdictional scheme under 1292, as well as other sections, and that therefore to reach the result that the Court of Appeals below reached would require you to conclude that Congress intended to take away that jurisdictional grant, that discretionary interlocutory appellate power, and that it intended to treat bankruptcy cases in a manner different than it treats all other civil actions. This is a dramatic result to be reached, particularly in the face of no evidence to support such a result or such a conclusion. And it makes no sense to conclude that Congress would intend to do that when there was before Congress no particular problem faced by 1292 interlocutory appeals in the bankruptcy context. There was no abuse alleged or pointed to, no problem identified that would be a basis or a reason for making this change. Ms. Hall, why do you suppose Congress enacted Section 158D uh, if the Courts of Appeal already had jurisdiction? It enacted, why did they need it? And is it just superfluous, in your view? 
In part, it was needed because of initially the House's desire to create the bankruptcy appellate panels. In Section 1293, which is the origin of 158D, the House wrote Section 1293 in order to create two additional bases in the courts of appeals that had not previously existed. That is, final decisional review of appeals from bankruptcy panels, which of course were new creations, and also to permit the a consensual direct appeal on final orders only directly from the bankruptcy court, which had been a desire of the House. Uh, when Section 158D was written in 1984, it took both 1293 as well as other sections, 1482 concerning bankruptcy panels and uh, 1334, which concerned the district court, appeals up from the bankruptcy court to the district courts and put them together in 158. To answer the second part of your question directly, uh, there is a redundancy. Uh, in, other than the grant of jurisdiction to the bankruptcy panels, which appears in D, D is repetitive in part of the grant of jurisdiction to the courts of appeals under 1291. However, a mere redundancy where there is no conflict between the provisions, in other words, you can apply both 158D to accord jurisdiction to the courts of appeals, and you can apply 1291 and achieve the exact same result. There will be jurisdiction on final decisions in the courts of appeals. There is further no reason to conclude that Congress would wish to treat bankruptcy appeals different because the purpose served by 1292B, in particular when it was enacted, the purpose it sought to address is just as pertinent in bankruptcy cases as it is in all other civil cases. The limited discretionary appeal that was granted to the Courts of Appeals under 1292B was designed to provide a specific benefit. That is, when the district court certifies that the issue at hand was a controlling issue of law as to which there was substantial disagreement as to the correct answer, and a result or a decision immediately might advance the termination of the litigation, the Courts of Appeals were to entertain such requests to hear these appeals. And only if the Court of Appeals agreed in its discretion to hear it would an appeal be entertained. Two, two benefits are achieved here. Potentially, there is an advancement of the instant litigation that is the subject of the 1292B case. But in addition, what you achieve is the addressing at the circuit level, not at a district court level, but at the circuit level of an important, presumably unsettled, issue of law. You also achieve a second inter interlocutory appeal. Uh, you were mentioning earlier that there's no conceivable reason why they would have uh, would have uh, put this in with the purpose that your opponent uh, asserts. But the very plausible reason, as the briefs point out, is uh, it's a terrible thing for a lawyer to have to go through uh, two interlocutory appeals. You have to go from the from the bankruptcy court to the district court, all the way up to the court of appeals. That's a lot of trouble. I would agree with you as two steps, uh, uh, Your Honor. However, those two steps also find a place in the appeal from a final order of a bankruptcy court. It is inherent in the nature of the scheme that Congress settled upon finally in 1984 that its desire to refer bankruptcy matters primarily and principally to the bankruptcy court and yet keep them attached to a district court necessarily results in that. Yeah, but uh, Congress might have felt that once is enough to have to go through all of that. And that the, the usual reasons for allowing interlocutory appeal when there's only one are outweighed by the, by the fact that you'd have to do it double if you, if you do it in this area. I mean, it's at least a plausible reason. It is plausible, Your Honor, and it is something Congress could have done. It is my position that it did not do so here. 
in order to reach the conclusion that that is the path Congress chose, you must conclude, as the Second Circuit's reasoning went, that because of this mere redundancy, which is an affirmance of grant of jurisdiction, that we must conclude that 158D is exclusive, in essence is, is the stop in interlocutory appeals, and that, therefore, if it is exclusive of 1291, it necessarily is exclusive of 1292. Well, of course, 158D does not say that. Unlike, for example, the Expediting Act, it does not say these are the only appeals. It merely makes an affirmative statement of appellate jurisdictional grant. Therefore, you must find an implied repeal. And implied repeals are drastic and rare results, as taught by the precedents in this court. And I would submit that in this case, the requirements of meeting such a test of implied repeal are woefully lacking. First, there is no irreconcilability, as I pointed out before. 158D, the, co- the party shares in common with 1291, provides for exactly the same result. So they are not irreconcilable. Second, the second alternative, which requires that the later enacted statute be comprehensive and be a substitute for the earlier alleged to be repealed statutes, also does not pertain here. Clearly, 158D is not a comprehensive substitute for 1291 and 1292. Otherwise, we are left with no general grant of jurisdiction to the courts of appeals from decisions of the district court. Even if, however, we were to get by one of these two requirements for implied repeals, we are still met with the problem of where is the evidence of Congress's clear and manifest intent to repeal this jurisdictional grant in 1292B. It is not in the language of the statute. It is not in the purpose of the act. Nor can it be found in the legislative history. This is a case where we have in the legislative history two reports, both written before this section was crafted. Neither of those reports support a conclusion of a clear and manifest intent to stop the process of interlocutory appeals short of the Court of Appeals and to strip them of this discretionary power to hear an interlocutory appeal. Now, the Second Circuit found an intent by Congress in this same legislative history. I would suggest, however, that the Second Circuit took a course which this Court has counseled against strongly and has disfavored, and that is that the Second Circuit relied upon mute, unexplained, intermediate steps going back and forth between the House and the Congress, and also upon silence, the absence of words in 158D. Neither of those have been found in the past to support a finding or a demonstration of clear and manifest intent. The trustee here is faced with a difficult problem. If he urges on this court that you must support his position and find that the redundancy in 158D requires the result that 1292 no longer will apply in bankruptcy cases, and at the bottom of that position is the redundancy, then he must answer the question of what is to be done with the language found in Section 305 of the Bankruptcy Code as enacted by Congress in 1990. Section 305 concerns orders of the bankruptcy court to dismiss or suspend a bankruptcy proceeding. Where is this in your brief, Ms. Hall? Your Honor, it is addressed, I believe, as the last point at pages 34 and 35. Thank you. Roman numeral six. When that was initially enacted, again in 1984, with the new bankruptcy code, the provision read that decisions of the the bankruptcy court, excuse me, 
to suspend or to dismiss a proceeding shall not be taken by way of appeal to the courts of appeals. There was some litigation surrounding this, that section, in particular the question of whether a denial of such a motion would be appealable, even though the statute said the granting would not. In 1990... Does one of the footnotes on 34 or 35 set forth the statute you're talking about verbatim? It, it does, Your Honor. Uh, it does, Your Honor. It sets it forth as it now appears after the 1990 amendment with the additional language in italics. The, that's the one on footnote, uh, on the last part of your footnote 41. Yes, Your Honor. At the Thank bottom you. of page 34 and then up to the 35. Thank you. The amendment in 1990 that Congress passed was to amend 305, first to make it clear that a denial of such a motion would also not be appealable, but in addition to specifically iterate the sources of Court of Appeals jurisdiction which could not be availed in order to take an appeal under 305. When they listed those sections, and this is, of course, an order of the bankruptcy court, clearly, by its own terms, 305 says bankruptcy court, and second, it could clearly be an interlocutory order. For example, a denial of a motion to suspend, thus the case continues, would be interlocutory. When Congress was specifically addressing the question of the source of jurisdiction in the courts of appeals in bankruptcy cases, it said such appeals in this instance, not this case, I'm sorry, Section 305, would not be permitted under 158D or 1291 or 1292. Thus, when Congress means to restrict the jurisdiction of the courts of appeals in a bankruptcy situation, it says it expressly. The the language of that amendment is directly contrary to the position the trustee urges on this court. What is the court to do with the Congress's statement, clear recognition that an appeal under 1292 is to be permitted in bankruptcy matters coming up from the bankruptcy court, except in certain specific instances, 305 being one and 1334C being another, and the remand statute being the third that was amended in 1990. As I've indicated in conclusion, the plain words of 1292B would provide discretionary jurisdiction to the courts of appeals in this case below. 158D does not require a different result. It is not a clear statement by the Congress that it meant to change an existing jurisdictional grant to the courts of appeals. The words of the statute do not support such a result. The purpose of the bankruptcy code does not support such a result. And the legislative history is silent. Thus, this court ought to interpret the plain words of the statute, 1292, to find jurisdiction in the courts of appeals and to conclude that 158D does not plainly express a congressional intent to alter the pre-existing jurisdictional grant to the Courts of Appeals. I would therefore ask this Court to reverse the Second Circuit Court of Appeals to remand the case to the Second Circuit for consideration of Connecticut National Bank's petition for leave to appeal. Mr. Chief Justice, if there are no further questions, I would request to reserve the balance of my time. Very well, Ms. Hall. Mr. Germain, we'll hear from you after our noon recess. Mr. Germain, we'll hear from you. 
Mr. Chief Justice, and may, may it please the Court. I believe, and it's the Respondent's position, that uh, this whole case revolves around the fact that if the peti petitioner's position is accepted, there was no reason for Congress to enact Section 158D insofar as it applied to district court jurisdiction. The first thing I would like to do is address myself to Justice O'Connor's uh, question that was directed to the attorney for the petitioner. When Justice O'Connor uh, asked what reason there would be for the passage of this statute, opposing counsel indicated that 158D did cover the situation uh, for appeals of the uh, bankruptcy panels created in one, Section 158B. I would suggest that, first of all, that is no reason for including district court jurisdiction in one, Section 158D. And, in fact, it raises a situation in which, if the petitioner's argument is accepted, a uh, strange situation is created in that 1292, which is relied upon by the petitioner for circuit of court jurisdiction of interlocutory appeals for the district court, does not cover such um, decisions by that uh, bankruptcy panel created in Section 158B. So you have a situation where if the petitioner's argument is accepted, you may have a review by the Circuit Court of Appeals for interlocutory orders from the district court, but if there is a district in which the bankruptcy panel under 158B has been created, 1292 under its plain language would not create, would not cover that situation. And in fact, that was recognized by the Second Circuit in its decision in this case. Yes, but, but isn't there an answer to that? Namely, that you've got a decision by three three judges there, so the, the need for further review is somewhat less than if you have just one judge passing on it. I mean, presumably you have three people who have decided the issue, and, and, and not providing for review from that doesn't seem to me necessarily means they didn't intend to provide the review that pre-existed from a normal district court decision. I believe, first of all, that there's still a review by the district court, and I don't know whether the fact that it's one judge or three judges would be that important. And secondly, that still doesn't respond to the situation that 158D does also include district court jurisdiction. If, in fact, it was Congress's intent when it passed 158D just to provide for uh, appeals from the panels created in 158B, there would have been no reason to include the district court in that section. It would not have been necessary. That's correct. But why would they repeal the normal 1292B review? What's the point of doing that? I don't really understand what's at work here. Well, there are... There is no specific reason that was set forth by Congress in the legislative history. That's conceded. It's just not there. But I think there are reasons. You're dealing with, in Section 158, not the general jurisdiction of the court that's, or the district court that's covered by 1292, but you're uh, dealing with bankruptcy matters. First of all, there is a recognized uh, policy in bankruptcy matters to encourage their expeditious administration. Right. And in fact, if you permit interlocutory appeals of interlocutory orders, to the Circuit Court of Appeals, that policy may be restricted because... It's entirely up to the Court of Appeals. They can turn down the appeal in 10 days. Isn't it a 10-day decision? I forget the 1292B. Don't they act on a petition within 10 Certainly, days? Certainly, but it may have been Congress's intent that they didn't even want to subject the bankruptcy court administration or the bankruptcy court estate to the possibility that, that would have to undergo this additional uh, review by the yes, Circuit Court but on the other appeals. side of the coin, every now and then there is a very important issue that arises in, in an interlocutory posture. And if you can't review, get it reviewed by the Court of Appeals until you finish the entire bankruptcy proceeding, maybe that's counterproductive in some cases. Certainly. In, in any individual case, no matter what rule you adopt, you're going to have individual cases where that rule may not apply. And why doesn't it make more sense to say, well, leave it to the discretion of the Court of Appeals, and they can identify those that are important and dismiss those that are just uh, dilatory? 
First of all, I think this case is still governed by the fact that there was no reason. I don't know whether you have to get into intent even, because there is no reason for 158D to be passed if, in fact, it wasn't meant to restrict the appellate court review. The reasons that I addressed the policy. That was the reason. They surely could have done it in more direct language than they did. You don't normally restrict by authorizing. I mean, it it speaks in terms of authorizing review, not foreclosing review. That's correct, but it it speaks only to final orders judgments uh, in Section 158D. There is no reference to an interlocutory order in that. No, because it's already authorized. In fact, if they wanted to have these type of appeals of interlocutory orders, they simply either could have included the language of interlocutory orders in that section or simply not have passed it at all. And, in fact, even though the Court's argument may have some possibility, I think it's much more likely, given the structure of the statutes and the language that are contained in it, that, in fact, this was intended not as a repeal of Section 1292, but as more of a preemption of it to handle appeals in this Partial specific repeal. manner. Partial repeal. Partial repeal, preemption. Whatever it is, the petitioner's brief speaks a great deal about the high standard that the court has to find when a statute repeals another statute and doesn't do it explicitly. I don't think that's the case in this situation. Uh, In fact, 1291 and 1292 cover a lot of situations that don't involve bankruptcy. And in fact, if the respondent's position in this case is accepted, as far as what the meaning of 158D is, you're not going to have a repeal of Section 1291 or 1292. It's still going to apply to all of those situations that don't involve bankruptcy. All you're talking yes, about... Yes, but it's partial repeal to the extent that 1292B applied in bankruptcy before. It, it may be just a matter of semantics, whether it's repeal or... Well, you don't normally talk about one federal statute preempting another federal statute. It either preempt, repeals it or it doesn't. Yes, you but... preempt case, state law or other things, you know. In, in this case, the fact that it's only a partial repeal and not a total repeal as that involved the cases that were cited by the petitioner in support of the statutory rule of interpretation, I think would limit the effect or limit the burden that the respondent has in order to overcome that. Mr. Um, Germaine, it seems to me another response uh, to the the seeming uh, anomaly of not being able to take uh, an interlocutory appeal from the bankruptcy panel, although you can take it from the district court under under the petitioner's interpretation, is that uh, uh, you, you wouldn't be before the bankruptcy panel uh, except voluntarily. You, you have to accede to the jurisdiction of the bankruptcy panel, and, and when you do, you know that one of the things that goes along with it is that you can't get an interlocutory appeal. Well, isn't that fair enough? That's correct, Your Honor, but that still wouldn't uh, resolve the situation where if this issue was important enough... Oh, right. You'd still be left with the, with, with the fact that you could not take an interlocutory appeal, but still... The fact that, uh, that it's been voluntarily assumed uh, is a basis for distinguishing that from the appeal from the district court. It may be, but it still doesn't answer the question of why 158D includes district court jurisdiction in addition to the uh, jurisdiction for the interlocutory panels. Um, another uh, reason that was relied upon a great deal by the petitioner in this case um, was the fact that uh, the clear language of the statute itself would support its position, that 1292 does provide for interlocutory appeal of district court orders. In fact, I would suggest to the Court that this standard or this rule of interpretation doesn't apply in this case. Normally, when that rule of interpretation is applied to a statute, you're talking about considering factors outside of statutory language 
when interpreting a statute such as legislative history. Uh, in fact, in this case, what the petitioner is asking you to do is not to ignore legislative history or factors outside of the statutory language, but is actually asking you to ignore other statutes itself. Uh, the interpretation that is advanced by the respondent in this case is not based upon or not rely primarily upon legislative history outside factors. It's relied upon 12, the language of 1292 when that is considered with the plain language of Section 158D. The whole uh, basis of the uh, argument advanced by the respondent is based upon the fact that there was no reason for Congress to pass 158D as far as it applied to district court jurisdiction if 1292 is going to apply also. This is not a situation where you're trying to bring things in outside of the plain language of the statute in order to advance an interpretation, but you're relying upon other statutes that is contained in the United States Code. What the petitioner asks you to do is to take 1292, set it aside by itself, and read it without any relation to any of the other statutes. And I think the rule of interpretation that is advanced to support that uh, is not relevant to that particular situation. How do you read it, read it in relation to 305C? Uh, 305, I think the argument that's made by the petitioner in that case is that 305C is inconsistent with the respondent's position. I don't think that's correct. Um, 305, uh, it concerns orders for abstention, and it's clear that Congress did not want those type of orders appealed to the Circuit Court of Appeals. Um, the ca cases that have considered 158D as far as it relates to 1292 um, have made it clear that that 158D does not limit uh, appeals to the Circuit Court of Appeals in a situation where the District Court is acting as the original court of jurisdiction for a bankruptcy matter. In fact, the District Court would be entitled, as the original court of jurisdiction, to enter an order under 305. So if it was the intent of Congress not to permit these appeals in order to cover a situation where the District Court was acting as the original court of jurisdiction, they would have had to include 1291 and 1292 in there in addition to 158. So, in fact, including those in there is not inconsistent with the respondent's position. It's simply to cover the situation when the district court is sitting as the original court of jurisdiction for a bankruptcy matter. Um, another of many basis of the petitioner's uh, arguments in this case is the fact that um, it would be unreasonable for Congress or to expect Congress to have wanted to accomplish this by the passage of 158D. Uh, because of the way or because of the result that they would result in, uh, the fact that there are matters that uh, are important enough that you may want interlocutory review of appellate um, of interlocutory orders by the bankruptcy court, and you're not going to have that if the respondent's position is accepted. I would suggest that uh, when you look at the law concerning what uh, concerns or what involves a final decision in a bankruptcy matter, and also the fact that the Court of Appeals does have the right to obtain jurisdiction over these type of orders by writ of mandamus, that any detrimental effect by the adoption of the respondent's position as far as how this statute is interpreted is going to be limited. Uh, bankruptcy matters are generally different than regular litigation matters in that you don't have two parties that are uh, in... Mandamus is an extraordinary remedy, though, uh, Mr. Germain. Uh, you know, our cases say it's not available to correct ordinary errors at all. I mean. Uh, I don't think man, uh, the fact that mandamus is available would would make it a substitute for the the right of appeal that the petitioner claims exists. Absolutely not. It would not be a substitute. Um, what I believe that uh, the respondent is arguing in this case is that there is reasons for other reasons that Congress may have wanted to limit 
uh, the review by the Court of Appeals of these interlocutory orders, and that in an extraordinary situation where this would cause a great injustice, that writ is available. Um, if there are policy reasons where Congress would do this, uh, then it would be reasonable for Congress to adopt Section 158 and give it the interpretation that's advanced by the respondent. I think the Court would be concerned about an extraordinary situation where that would cause a great injustice, and in that situation, the writ of mandamus would be available to remedy it. But I am not advancing the argument that this is a substitute in any situation. That wouldn't make any sense. If Congress wanted to limit these, certainly saying that there is a substitute for it would be completely counter to my arguments. What this is is that a concern that there may be an extraordinary situation that would cause a great injustice. Of course, can be that isn't by the that. test for mandamus under our cases. An extraordinary situation that would cause great injustice. People may feel that that's what it in fact works out to be, but certainly that's not the the, the stated test. It, it's a lack of jurisdiction or something approaching that, isn't it? Well, I think the uh, effect or the result of the failure to have that appeal is a consideration in issuing a writ of mandamus, uh, even though that is not the only consideration. And as again, I'm not advancing this as a substitute for appellate court jurisdiction of interlocutory orders. It's simply a minimization of any uh, substantial detriment that may result from, in fact, uh, not providing for this appellate court review. I would again further suggest that we are only speaking about uh, the appellate review of interlocutory orders. This is not a denial of either the Court of Appeals or this Court in order to review these decisions of the bankruptcy court. It simply means that you have to wait to the end of the case in order to do that. And there are good reasons for doing that. Uh, even though it is recognized by the court that there are reasons for permitting appeals of interlocutory orders, it is also recognized that there is a cost to this. This cost may be magnified in a situation where you have a bankruptcy estate, where there are important policies for encouraging expeditious administration of it. Uh, and in fact, um, by, by only permitting review or appellate review of final decisions rather than interlocutory decisions, you have situations where, they, before, because of many reasons, these reviews may not become uh, necessary for the bankruptcy estate, or a situation where if the bankruptcy estate is forced to appeal this issue, at least it can go up to the level and have all of the issues resolved, rather than trying to do it on a piecemeal uh, basis. In this case, if there is a final decision in this, and there is a subsequent appeal, uh, the bankruptcy estate would have been forced to go up through the appellate process twice, instead of simply having all of the issues presented at one time with the saving of time and expense to the bankruptcy estate. Um, and again, I don't think that my argument is really necessary. It's necessary to find that these policy reasons are valid um, or, in fact, uh, stronger than any policy reasons that are advanced by the petitioner. Really, the basis of the argument is based upon the fact that there was no reason for 158D to be passed if you accept the petitioner's interpretation of it. These policy reasons that I'm presenting to the court are simply to counter the arguments presented by the petitioner and suggested in other cases or in other uh, court of appeals that have considered this issue that, in fact, it may be unreasonable to find the interpretation advanced by the respondent because there's no reason for it. There are reasons for it. Uh, and therefore, I think that even though the basis of it is the uh, structure of 158D and the fact that there's no reason to have passed it without, um, if the petitioner's argument is accepted, these arguments do counter the petitioner's argument and the Court of Appeal arguments that are presented it that there was no reason for doing it. Do you, do you contend, Mr. Germain, that Section 158 
covers the subject of appeals from orders of bankruptcy judges more or less from A to Z, so that you no longer need 1291 or 1292 when you're talking about, you can just read 158? No, it does apply, well, it does apply to all orders um, that are issued by bankruptcy judges. 158A says that all orders by bankruptcy judges have to be appealed to the district court, uh, whether they are interlocutory or final orders. The question is, and all orders by the bankruptcy court are covered by that. Um, The question is, is then once you get to the district court, what happens after that? Now, the argument by the petitioner is, is that 1291 and 1292 would cover that as well as 158D. And there's, if you just uh, consider that without 158, if 158D had never been passed, there may have been some merit to that argument. You go from the bankruptcy court to the district court under 158A, then 1291 and 1292 take over and govern the further appeals of that. And in fact, if Congress had never passed 158D, that would be the obvious system that you would adopt under the language of the statute. The problem with it is, is that Instead of just leaving that the way it was, Congress, in fact, did pass 158D. Do you think 158D wholly supersedes 1291 and 1292 when you're talking about appeal from bankruptcy orders from the District Court to the Court of Appeals? Yes. Um, to the, uh, two reasons for that. It supersedes 1291, which really doesn't have a great effect because basically all it does is repeat 1291. You can obtain the same uh, thing that's stated in 1291 because you do have appeals of final judgments and orders from the bankruptcy court that go up to the district court. Um, my argument is, is that it is supersedes 1292 because it didn't mention interlocutory orders in that. Um, they both, it, it is relevant because, first of all, they found it necessary to repeat 1291. It wasn't Congress's intent to replace the system that was set up by 1291 and 1292 by 158, there wouldn't have been any reason to repeat 158D because 1291 would have covered it. And therefore, the natural, natural presumption of that is that uh, 1292 also doesn't apply. And since interlocutory orders aren't provided in 158D, you don't have jurisdiction for those type of cases. Mr. Germain, can I ask you a question? I'm, I'm not sure I completely understand either the statute or what you were telling me about it. Uh, with respect to 158B1, the panel, the section authorizes appeals to panels consisting of three bankruptcy judges. What is your view as to where an appeal from an order by the panel of three judges goes? As far as a final judgment, it would go to the uh, Second Circuit. Go to the Court of Appeals. That's correct. And that's provided for in 158D. So, so it, it is correct that 158D was necessary to take care of appeals from that panel. That's correct. And that goes, and, and there's... Ironically, though, that is treated as an order of the district court, is it, when the three-judge three bankruptcy judge panel resolves an appeal from a state? No, I don't think it's necessary to find that. 158D says any orders that are entered under 158A or 158B right. can be appealed to so the So you don't really have to decide whether it's a direct appeal from the bankruptcy judges or from the district court. That's correct. It yeah. is authorized. But it does go directly to the Court of Appeals. Yes, it's clear that 158D does That's provide what I thought that. I did. Well, for purposes of 1292B, if the interlocutory uh, appeal is heard by the bankruptcy panel, I take it you do have some problem with 1292B because it requires certification by a district judge. That's correct. I mean, the plain language of 1292B only applies to the district court. Uh, There was a position raised by this court that the fact that it's voluntary may be a reason why you don't allow appeals to the Court of Appeals. But the fact is, is that 
1292B, uh, clearly by the plain language of it, would not provide the interlocutory appeal of an interlocutory order up to the Circuit Court of Appeals. Uh, further support for the respondent's position is also found in the legislative history of Section 158's predecessor, Section 1293. Even though 1293 never became effective during the uh, time that it was enacted, uh, in fact, it is clear from the courts that have considered it that 1293 was basically a predecessor of 158 and that the legislative history in cases interpreting that can be applied to 158. Um, the legislative history was specifically set out in detail in the Second Circuit Court of Opinion, which noted that, uh, in fact, the uh, uh, version of that statute immediately prior to its passage did not have any provision as it was contained in Section 158D, which uh, provided for the appeal to the Circuit Court of Appeals of only final judgments, orders, or decrees. And, in fact, that was added later on. I would suggest to the Court that though this is nowhere near as important as the original argument for my interpretation, the fact that there was no reason to pass 158D if you uh, provide for appellate uh, coverage under 1292, it adds further support to the respondent's position. Um, and if there are no further questions from the court, I will... I have only one small question. Do you have bankruptcy appellate panels in the Second Circuit? No, we do not. Thank you, Mr. Thank you, Mr. Germain. Uh, Ms. Hall, you have 15 minutes remaining. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Uh, first, in response to some questions about the bankruptcy appellate panels, in addition to them being consensual uh, courses of appeal for the litigants, there's another important aspect of the bankruptcy appellate panels, which the district court decision does not give us, and that is they are constituted or meant to be constituted on a circuit-wide basis. They are created by the circuit, and presumably their decisions have precedential value on a circuit-wide basis, which is, as I pointed out in my argument, a benefit of the 1292B appeal, that in the very limited circumstance of a very important question, the benefit to be achieved in, from 1292B is not only to advance the litigation that's before the Court of Appeals, but also to attempt to settle an unsettled question of law which will have precedential value on a circuit-wide basis. The bankruptcy panels do satisfy that purpose, and thus the fact that the appeal stops with the bankruptcy appellate panel at the interlocutory level is at least understandable and distinct from the suggestion that it should stop at the district court level, which not only doesn't offer a panel or appellate review, but is of little precedential value, in fact none, I would suggest, beyond the case before the district court. The standard by which a court of appeals decides to accept submission uh, under 1292B uh, is it, it, it's whether the, the issue would be dispositive in the particular case, isn't it? A controlling question of law? That is the standard by which the district court must first certify the appeal to even be considered by the court of appeals. Uh, yes, Mr. Chief Justice. The Court of Appeals then has, in the words of the statute, discretion to take the appeal. Presumably, if it does not think it's a controlling issue of law which will advance the litigation, it will not exercise that discretion. But there's nothing indicating that a Court of Appeals must look for something of general importance in that question. Is it beyond the particular case? Uh, only in the words of the statute which address the fact that it not only be controlling, which presumably speaks in terms of that, that litigation, yeah. but that it be a question as to which it is unsettled, and as to, in other words, the words I believe are that there are substantial grounds for difference of opinion. 
So you say that means beyond that case. It should be something of, of general, general importance. Yes, Your Honor. Uh, second, uh, to pick up on a point made by uh, my opponent uh, in response to a question, uh, Justice, about Section 305, he, his response concerned the abstention orders, which are district court orders, and therefore it does make sense that the amendment in 1990 to the abstention section, which is 1334C, would include 1291 and 1292. Uh, most courts have felt that 1291 and 2 are still in place for district court originated bankruptcy cases. However, that does not address the Section 305, which is the dismissal or suspension orders, which are clearly orders that can be entered by a bankruptcy court. When a case has been referred to it, certainly in the first instance, a motion to dismiss that case would be decided by the bankruptcy court, and that would be under 305. And Congress in 305, just as in 1334, amended in 1990 to add the words appeals to the courts of appeals under 158D, 1291, and 1292. It's a clear expression that when Congress addressed the issue of appellate review in a bankruptcy case originating in the bankruptcy court, it thought that an appeal would lie under 1292, and therefore when it wished to bar appeals, it needed to list 1292. And, and 305 applies only to bankruptcy courts, not to district courts? I don't think that's exactly correct. I believe that you could have a case in the district court that had not been referred under 157C. Well, then that, then that would explain why you had to refer to both uh, 158D and 1295 and 1292 for those cases that, that might arise, uh, might be coming up from the district court. I mean, all you need is some cases to explain the reference to 1291 or 1292. That's, that's correct, Your Honor. 305, though, would, could be a district court order. The issue, the, the respondent's position rests primarily on the redundancy, the appearance of the words dist and district court. Those first appeared in Section 1293, and although they were not explained when they appeared, if you look at the structure of 1293 when enacted and when drafted, which is set forth at page 24 and 25 of my brief, you will see that the district court reference gets inserted by the Senate in subpart B of 1293. Subpart A addresses decisions of the bankruptcy appellate panels. Decisions is the words found in 1291 of Title 28 and are usually meant to refer to final decisions. When the word district court was entered in B, it could be argued that they added it because the phrases final judgment, order, and decree did not appear in Title 28 anywhere in referring to district court decisions. Now, it's un also unnecessary because Rule 54 makes the word judgment encompass all decisions, orders, and decrees. But that could explain a need to, or a perceived need to insert the words district court. It is clearly, as it appears in 158, a redundancy. However, it is an unexplained redundancy. It is not addressed by the Congress does not explicitly state it's meant to repeal anything. And such unexplained, reconcilable redundancies, not irreconcilable, we don't have a different result under 1291 and 158D, do not support a finding of a congressional intent to repeal a pre-existing jurisdictional grant to the courts of appeals. If this is not a repeal pro tanto of 1291 and 1292, then that jurisdictional grant found in those two sections is still in effect and still applicable, and that the appeal below should be entertained. There has been no showing that Congress meant to repeal that jurisdictional grant. 
Certainly 158 and its mere affirmance of existing jurisdiction does not supply that intent. If there are no further questions, thank you very much, Mr. Chief Justice. Thank you, Ms. Hall. The case is submitted.